Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone. My name is Frank Place. I am the director of the CDIR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets, or PIM as we call it. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this webinar. Today's topic is Beyond Agriculture, Measuring Agri-Food System GDP and Employment. Agri-food systems remain crucial for the livelihoods and well-being of most of the world's poor, and successful agricultural transformation is still strongly associated with long-term economic development. The agri-food system encompasses not only the primary agriculture, agricultural sector, but also all upstream and downstream agricultural-related activities. Measuring transformation of the agri-food system therefore requires economy-wide data and innovative metrics. This webinar will present a new approach developed by IFPRI with support from USAID and PIM for measuring agri-food system GDP and employment. And it's my great pleasure to introduce the speaker today. Uh, James Thurlow is Senior Research Fellow in the Development Strategy and Governance Division of the International Food Policy Research Institute. Uh, within PIM, James leads our research cluster on agricultural transformation and rural incomes. In his research, James focuses on the interactions between policies, economic growth, and poverty, primarily using computable general equilibrium and micro simulation modeling. He has enhanced the scope of simulation models to incorporate a range of other outcomes, including nutrition, environment, gender, and employment. He's also made some of the tools uh, very user-friendly for uh, non-specialists as well. On employment, James help, uh, helped to uh, co-edit uh, a book called Youth and Jobs in Rural Africa, Beyond Stylized Facts, drawing from panel data sets. And in the past, he's also previously worked on evaluating public investments and in policies, rural, regional, and urban development, and climate change and other external risks. He has worked with governments and researchers throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, many, many countries, and also in other countries such as Bangladesh, Peru, Tunisia, and Vietnam. Before I hand, it over to James, a few notes on how we proceed. The presentation will last for about 30 minutes with the rest of the time dedicated to questions and answers. Please feel free to send your questions in via the chat window on the right side of your screens at any time during the webinar. We're gonna do our best to pose those to James and have as many of those answered as possible. When you ask your question, please let us know who and where, uh, where you are from and what organization you represent, if applicable. And finally, we are recording the webinar and we'll make it available on our website shortly after the live event. So with that, over to you, James. Well, thanks, Frank. Um, and thanks to everyone for, um, for attending this session today. Um, I mean, I, I know that uh, your uh, time is precious. And so I guess I probably don't have to, the fact that you're here means that I probably don't have to um, convince you that you know, taking an agri-food system approach to the work that we do for our, um, our development um, research and, and interventions is really important. Um, but let me speak a little bit from uh, my, the perspective of my research team at, at IFPRI, where we focus on agricultural transformation. And it's very difficult to, um, to do any kind of research or thinking in the area of agricultural transformation without thinking about broader agri-food systems. And, and that's because if we go back to some of the earliest traditional thinking around um, agricultural transformation, the idea that it is a sequence of stages that countries go through, what we see clearly in, in, this, um, in this diagram here is that 
as we move along the process of agricultural transformation, we're progressively moving further and further away from the farm. So while agricultural transformation may start on the farm with an increase in productivity um, and among subsistence farmers, eventually those farmers are able to produce a surplus and to supply those into markets. And in doing so, they create jobs and activities for food traders in, in those local markets. Eventually, farmers and other rural households start rural businesses, non-farm businesses that generate demand for agriculture, create incomes and job opportunities throughout the rural economy. And now we're talking about a, a whole new range of jobs and, and value addition happening within the, within the agri-food system. And then finally, towards the final stages of, of trans agricultural transformation, we're looking at urban consumers driving the transformation process um, with goods traveling even further to get to those urban consumers and urban consumers demanding more processed and packaged foods. And that processing and that packaging and that trading and transporting, all of that becomes part of this broader agri-food system. And so eventually, through a successful transformation process, we end up with uh, an agricultural system that is so much more than just farming. And so we can take that perspective and think about, well, what is an agri-food system? How are we going to define it, right? How can we operationalize this idea of an agri-food system approach? And um, of course, there are many different ways, many different people see agri-food systems in a different way. Um, you may think of it as a group of actors that are working somewhere in the supply of food. You may think of it as the inter intersection between the economy and the environment um, and the regulations and protections and the ecosystem services, all of which are so crucial to the broader agri-food system. I'm afraid today we're going to put on the hat of a rather boring economist and we're going to think about what can be measured and what are the kinds of indicators that we can produce that capture the economic aspects of the agri-food system. And so here on the, on the screen is one way of representing an agri-food system. And in its, in its simplest sense, an agri-food system is the sum of all of the agricultural value chains, food and agricultural value chains in the economy. And so within this, um, within this framework, we have farmers, right? And those farmers together, and that includes forestry and fisheries as well, I should stress, but that farmers, they together make up what we call traditional or primary agriculture. If you add up all of the wages and the salaries um, and the, the land rent, rents and everything that is earned by those farmers and add it all together, you get agricultural GDP, which we know very well. But then we can follow the chain beyond the farm. And so farmers are supplying their outputs to aggregators who then may supply it directly to consumers or pass it further along the supply chain to processors who are packaging and processing the food into its new, um, its new transformation. Those processors supply it again to traders who then take it either directly to the consumer or may take it to food services, service providers. Those food service providers are people who are preparing the meals ready for sale. It could be street vendors or restaurants or hotels um, where they are selling ready-made meals, right? And some of this along the chain, some of, this could, uh, some of these outputs could be exported. But one thing that is common across all of them is that they're all demanding inputs 
Some of those inputs could be imported, but some are produced domestically. So we're here, we're thinking of the fertilizers and the fuels and the packaging, um, which may be produced locally. And in doing so creates jobs and incomes for those people working in those parts of the agri-food system. And so, as I mentioned, the green box here, component A, um, of our six components of the agri-food system. Component A is, the, is what we call agricultural GDP. But the processing is a component or a part of the broader manufacturing GDP. Remember, GDP is gross domestic product. It's basically a measure of all the incomes that are being earned across the sectors within these categories. And traders are part of the service sector GDP. Um, and then, of course, our input supplies could come from anywhere across the economy. So what we're going to do now with this framework, with these six components, A through F, these six components of the agri-food system, we're going to generate two different indicators that we think are particularly important. And I'm going to show you that they're important for helping us understand the transformation process. The first indicator is what we'll call agri-food system GDP. That's total value added generated by all the agricultural value chains. Um, and we're going to call that Ag GDP Plus. This is actually a metric that USAID, that we worked to, with USAID to develop. Um, and for them, the, the, the term Ag GDP Plus is very much part of, of the language that they use. Um, it's a measure of agri-food system GDP. And the plus is the key because in the plus are all of the aggregators and processors and traders and so on. Um, and then the second indicator is going to be agri-food system employment. So we're not just going to be adding up all the incomes, but we're going to be counting the number of people who are working within these different components of the agri-food system. And we'll have some restrictions um, and some limitations on what we, what we count as employment, such as people need to be over a certain age and so on, um, which we know is not always um, followed in every country's official statistics. But this is, um, we're going to have a working definition that we can use, that we can measure just how important the agri-food system is for total employment. So let's just quickly run through one more time what we're going to call the six components of Ag GDP Plus. So we've already mentioned there's going to be agriculture. That, is going, that includes all crops, livestock, forestry, and fishing GDP. So it's, it's agriculture in its entirety. It's agricultural GDP as we see it reported in official statistics. Then there's going to be processing. And so that's going to be all food and agriculture related manufacturing GDP. So think food processing, which is often singled out in national statistics, but also beverages and tobacco. And then some very basic stages of the transformation process of, of um, commodities like cotton being turned into yarn or wood being turned into timber or sorry, timber being turned into very basic uh, wood products. So think um, the next stage on from the, um, from the forestry sector within agriculture. Then we're also going to count, and this is going to turn out to be very important, the trade and transport portions of the agri-food system. This is going to be a portion of the services sector's GDP that is associated not just with trading and transporting generally, but with the trading and transporting of food and agricultural products, right? In, in some countries where they've attempted to measure agri-food system um, uh, GDP in, in some form, this is a component that they've often excluded. But this turns out to be particularly important for developing countries, and you'll see that in a second. We can measure trade and transport um, uh, GDP because inside national accounts, the main data source that I'm going to talk about in a minute is um, 
there's our trade and transport margins or transaction cost margins that are associated with each and every product that is being counted by each country's national accountant. That's basically telling you the gap between, say, the producer price and the market price. Now, part of that gap could be taxes, of course, but a big part of it is actually just the moving of goods from the farm to the factory, from the factory to the consumer. And we can measure using official statistics um, what that gap is and therefore how much does it add up to if we just look at food and agricultural products instead of all of the products in, in the economy. The, the fourth component, component D, is food services. And this is going to be all the GDP that is generated in the preparation of meals, the ready-made meals that are being sold, prepared and sold outside of the home. Again, think restaurants and street vendors. The, the fifth component is hotels, and that may seem a little strange, but remember there are important restaurants inside hotels, and they're actually quite a large consumer of processed food products in, in, in all countries, particularly in developed countries. Um, and so we need to capture the portion of that GDP that is generated by the hotel, hotel sector that comes from the selling of meals as opposed to the renting out of accommodation. And we can do that by unpacking the, um, the, the cost structure, the cost of production, how much of the cost of production are associated with the buying and selling of food as opposed to the buying and selling or the selling of rooms or accommodation. And then the sixth component, E around, uh, F, around inputs, this is going to be all the GDP that is generated during the domestic production of the inputs used by farmers in agriculture and by processors. We're not going to include all the other um, inputs that are used by traders and transporters and food services because at some point we're casting the net too wide. At the end of the day, everything is somehow related to food and agriculture, including all the work that we as individuals do, no matter which sector we work in. So we have to draw, and in which case, all of GDP would be included in our measure of the agri-food system because we're all somehow dependent on food and agriculture. But what we're going to do is tight, uh, cast a tighter net, a more immediate link, link between food and agricultural products um, and the value added and the employment that, that occurs within these or gets generated inside these, these sectors. Um, so this is quite a conservative estimate, perhaps too conservative for some, um, for example, we are not capturing, um, say, the value added that is generated by agricultural training colleges, right, or um, in agricultural R&D centers, which are part of the government's GDP. That would be too difficult for us to extract with any degree of precision. And so we would rather leave it out than make some heroic assumptions in order to try and include it. I'm sure you have many other suggestions on what should be included uh, that currently isn't. So then the question is, where do we get our data from? And actually, you'd be surprised that most of the data that we need is coming from the official statistics of individual countries. And that is because whenever a national accountant within the statistical agency um, is tasked with generating GDP, or what we call periodically re-benchmarking or rebasing the level of GDP in a country. And I'm sure in your country, you've been through a period where they've said, actually, GDP is a little bit bigger than we previously thought. They say that because they've gone through a process of rebasing the national accounts. And to do that, they, they compile what we call a supply use table or an input-output table. A supply use table is a more modern input-output table. And that includes all the information on all the goods and services and the exchange of those goods and services, all the incomes that are being earned in different sectors. Often we'll find countries 
unpack the, the their economy in these supplies tables down to two or three hundred different product types and through a hundred different um, uh, economic sectors. This is far more information than we actually need for our purposes here. Um, and of course, it's not true that every country goes to that level of uh, detail. The one thing I want to stress, even though Frank started by saying that I'm a modeler and I do lots of um, uh, strange modeling, um, none of what I'm going to present today involves any modeling. This is purely a statistical exercise drawing on official statistics, right? So there is no um, voodoo going on in the background. There is no strange arcane arts that are turning, creating data and making lots of assumptions. We have a definition and we're simply applying it to the data. Um, so we're going to get our main data for GDP from the supply use tables. And then in addition to that, we're going to, um, we're going to estimate uh, these employment um, numbers using the ILO employment statistics. And we use ILO not because we think it is the definitive final word on employment, because we know that, that there are always definitional issues and so on. We use the ILO employment statistics because it provides a standard definition of employment and population uh, employment numbers across a large number of countries. And you'll see in a second that we're going to be working across a large number of countries. So for example, knowing that employment is defined in the same way with the same age thresholds, 15 years or older, makes it much easier for us to make comparisons across countries. Um, and so that's one of the big benefits, recognizing that obviously focusing in on primary employment instead of secondary jobs and, um, and having quite tight restrictions on who, who counts as, as a potential worker, like 15-year-olds and higher, um, can be quite limiting. Okay. So here's... Here's a taste of the results, and I'm happy to go through in more detail in, in the Q&A, but I think it's important for us to actually see some numbers in front of us. So here are some measures of Ag GDP Plus and Ag Employment Plus for eight countries um, out of our data set right, um, that we've compiled. So what does this tell us? Well, remember on the right-hand side, we have these six different components that we've broken the agri-food system down and the green down into, and the green component is agricultural GDP. So let's go to Ethiopia on the top left. What this bar is telling you is that agriculture makes up 31%, the green box makes up 31% of total GDP in Ethiopia. That is agriculture's GDP share, right? What you can also see is that once we've applied our methodology, our, our definition, sorry, to, to, the, to the official data, the size of the agri-food system as a share of the overall economy is much bigger than just agriculture alone. Instead of 31% of GDP, the agri-food system is closer to 46% of GDP. And you can see from the different colored bars, which correspond to these six different components in the figure on the right, the largest bar, um, apart from agriculture is that orange bar, which is trade and transport, the trading and transporting of goods from farm to factory, from factory to consumer, or factory to market, okay? But there is also additional GDP generated by the dark red bar, which is processing, by the blue bar, which is food services, again, restaurants and street vendors, and then the yellow bar, which is the input suppliers. So the key thing here is no matter which country you look at from this selection of eight, you can see that the agri-food system in terms of GDP goes well beyond just the farm itself, right? And we can see there's quite a lot of variation across countries. So for example, if we look at Guatemala and Honduras, 
there is a very large component. In fact, actually the off-farm components of the agri-food system are together much bigger than agriculture itself. There's a lot more value added in the agri-food system happening beyond the farm than there is actually happening on the farm. And that's to do with Honduras and Guatemala's um, export orientation of agriculture, which involves a lot of packaging and a lot of exports um, and a lot of value addition that happens in those, those activities. We'll take a look on the next slide um, how that's the case. Um, okay, and then if we look at the bottom uh, segment, the bottom panel, this is employment. And what we can see, and this is no surprise to us, we know that GDP as a share of the economy, agriculture's share of the economy declines much faster as a country develops. Right, than, the sh than agriculture's share of employment, which tends to lag behind the, tra the transition away from agriculture. And you can see that here. Even in countries that have very large off-farm components of the agri-food system, such as Ethiopia, those off-farm components make up a much smaller share of total employment. And so most of the employment in, in Ethiopia, for example, two-thirds, 67%, still happens on the farm. Um, but still, overall, the agri-food system is larger than agriculture alone. Now, of course, how is this possible? How can we have such a large GDP share attributed to off-farm set components and such a small share of employment? Well, that's because GDP per worker, labor productivity, is much higher in those off-farm sectors than they are in agriculture alone. That's why it's possible to have two-thirds of workers in Ethiopia engaged in agriculture but together they only generate one third of national GDP. Okay, that's a consistent regularity across countries. And it largely reflects the fact that agriculture is generally speaking, one of the lowest product productivity, labor productivity sectors in the economy. GDP per worker tends to be lowest in agriculture or particularly low in agriculture compared to the rest of the economy. So this is a taste of some of our numbers that we've generated in measuring the agri-food system. And it's particularly important. Already you can see why taking an agri-food systems approach is important, at least for understanding the overall value of food and agriculture in the broader economy. But we can go beyond these, well, we can actually look at the contribution of, of these different components, these off-farm components to the rest of the economy. And that's what we're doing here. What share of total manufacturing GDP in Ethiopia is actually food and agriculture related. And you can see in Ethiopia, it's almost a half. A half of manufacturing GDP is still, even though Ethiopia is well known for its footwear and, um, and other sectors that have been developing very quickly, still half of manufacturing is associated with food and agriculture. Again, remember I said in Honduras and Guatemala, a lot of the manufacturing sector is geared towards agricultural exports, packaging and preparing for, for exports to, to developed markets. And you can see that here, that again, more than half in the case of Guatemala of manufacturing is food and agriculture related. The opposite is true for Bangladesh. As you know, Bangladesh is also famous for its textile and clothing sector, or clothing sector, um, which makes up a very large part of the, of the manufacturing sector, which is why it's such a large part of the overall economy. And that explains partly why food and agriculture is still a very low share or low portion of manufacturing in the country. We can also look at services. Um, down here on the bottom panel. This is total services in the economy. Most countries nowadays have a very large share of their GDP coming from the service sector, broadly defined. And what we can see here is that a significant share of those services 
is still um, related to the trading and transporting and selling of um, food and agriculture related products and that varies considerably across countries. We can step back so we've looked at eight countries but actually we've made these estimates for 98 countries in the world where we have the data that we need in order to estimate them or at least readily available uh, data and this is just a, a, a slide that's explaining to you the level of coverage that we have of the global um, of countries and the global agri-food uh, the global economy and so these in red are the different countries that we have captured and you can see here in for each of these developing regions what share of GDP shown as a dollar sign and what share of total employment shown as a briefcase um, uh, are we covering with our sample of 98 countries. So for North America we have complete coverage because there are only three countries and we have all three of them in our in our sample. Right. Um, we have very good coverage, almost perfect coverage of um, European and Central Asian GDP, perfect coverage for Central, for East Asia, and almost near coverage for um, South Asia. Where we are um, falling a little bit short in our sample is particularly in the Middle East and North Africa, where we're only covering about half of GDP and only about half of employment. So any estimates that we present for this particular region should be treated with some caution. Um, um, but we're still pretty good for Sub-Saharan Africa, 84% um, of the economy covered, and Latin America had a similar share. Right. This is our coverage for the different income groups, and you'll see where we are most lacking is in the low-income countries, and that's not surprising because that's where data tends to be poorest. And a lot of these great countries here where we have missing data are the ones that are in Africa where those countries are more likely to be low-income. I'm going to present numbers for what I'm calling circa 2016, and that's because not all of our data comes from exactly 2016. It's largely coming from a 2015 to 2017 period. You can see this in the bottom right-hand corner where um, almost all of our measure of gross national income, uh, almost very similar to GDP, um, where we've got about a 99% um, of our sample is within these three-year periods. But there are for some population and some countries that are sort of have large populations that fall slightly outside of this particular target area. So just to stress, this is circa 2016, not exactly 2016. So let's take a look at some of these numbers. So on the left-hand side, um, what we're looking at are, are point estimates for ag GDP and ag GDP plus as a share of the total economy. Um, and on the horizontal axis, we have different levels of income, national income, GNI per capita. And what you can see, and this is no surprise, is that as country, countries at higher levels of development tend to have a smaller, an agricultural sector that is a smaller share of the overall economy agriculture becomes less important as countries develop, um, if we were to stretch this cross-sectional data. What you can also see is that ag GDP plus is generally higher than just agriculture alone, and we've just looked at why, because of all these other components of the food system, but it also falls, but at a much slower rate. And in fact, if we look at the right-hand side, this is telling us what is the share of those off-farm components of the agri-food system relative to the overall agri-food system. So yes, the agri-food system is getting smaller as a share of the economy over time, but within the agri-food system, those off-farm components are becoming increasingly more important. And you can see here, um, by the time a country gets to around $4,000 per capita per year, that's upper the beginnings of upper middle income status for the most part, half of the value added, the GDP inside the agri-food system, 
is from those off-farm components and the other half is from farming. There's a dollar of GDP generated off the farm for every dollar of GDP that is generated on the farm at this 4,000 point. And this is a fairly steady pattern that we see across, across this large number of countries. We can also look at this across different income groups. So this is now um, that measure of ag GDP plus um, across different uh, income groups, right? From low income to high income households. And you can see this very steady fall in the overall contribution of the agri-food system to national GDP, right? But at the same time, you can also see these off-farm components becoming more important. By the time for high income households, only about 1% of national GDP is on the farm but 6% comes from the overall agri-food system. If we look globally, the agri-food system is twice as large, more than twice as large as agriculture itself. Right? So this is very useful, and we can obviously look across different developing regions, and we see that a lot of those low-income countries that we've just spoken about, as you know, are more likely to be sitting in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, and so therefore these are regions which um, where we see a higher um, uh, overall size of the agri-food system. So here's some of our take-home numbers. So let's start at the very bottom, sorry, just so I can explain to you um, uh, what we're doing here. So what this is telling us, remember I, I said by the time a country gets to $4,000 per, per capita per year, um, we're getting $1 of GDP off the farm for every $1 on the farm. Well, this is just a summary of that. Globally, for every dollar of GDP generated on the farm, on the bottom left-hand side, we can see we're getting $1.4 generated off the farm. So that's more dollars of GDP off the farm and within the agri-food system than we're getting on the farm, right? We're getting about 31 jobs off the farm for every 100 jobs that we create on the farm. And we can look at how this varies across different, different um, levels of development. So that GDP, that very high level of value addition that happens off the farm is very much concentrated in amongst high income households. But remember these upper middle income households are also past that $4,000 mark. And so we're seeing um, that one to one ratio of GDP. Um, and here you can see it by developing regions where it's very high in Europe and in North America um, because they have far more developed agri-food systems. So we can take these numbers. Remember we had some missing gaps, particularly for the Middle East and North Africa, where we said our sample of countries is only capturing about half of the economy, half of the, the workforce. If we take these ratios, this dollar for dollar um, ratios, and we apply them to those missing countries to try and fill in the data gaps, then what we end up with in, after mapping them to their region and their, and their level of income, what we end up with is, is an estimate, a provisional, a rough estimate of what is the size of the global agri-food system, right? The global agri-food system, by our estimates, accounts for about 8 trillion US dollars per year, and it employs about 1.2 billion workers across the, across the planet, right? That's, um, that $7.8 um, trillion is significantly higher than the roughly $3.3 billion that are being generated just on the farm. Okay, and that 1.2 billion workers in the agri-food system is larger than the roughly 900 million that are just working on the farm. So looking at the broader agri-food system is crucial in order to capture the true value of food and agriculture in the global economy. We can also break down 
and, and look at the breakdown of global ag GDP plus across the different um, income groups, low income to high income countries, and look at that in relation to the distribution of the global population. And what you can see is that these low and lower income countries, the green and the red, together they make up almost half of the global population, but they account for only a fifth of the global agri-food system, right? So a fifth of the global agri-food system is in a sense feeding half of the world's population, at least in terms of value addition. Now, I've presented lots of numbers and we've taken a bird's eye view of the global agri-food system, but I want to end with just two slides that stress that this is actually useful for detailed analysis at the country level and for making decisions. Right, because remember, most of what we do is help advise governments on where we think that they should be allocating their scarce resources to drive that process of agricultural transformation. And so one of the things that we can do with Agri with, with Ag GDP Plus is not just scale it up to the global level but and compare compare across countries, but we can actually unpack a country's agri-food system into its different um, value chain groups or product groups. So this is just one example where we took uh, 12 countries that are of particular interest to, to USAID and we unpacked their agri-food systems across these broad categories of products, right? And so this is very useful if you are looking to do say an agri-food system diagnostic for a particular country, or if you're wanting to sort of put numbers to the advice and the information you're basing, basing decisions on when it comes to doing national development strategies or investment planning. So agri-food system, uh, the, the fact that you can decompose um, ag GDP plus into these different components is extremely useful, particularly if you look across time and want to know what's driving change in, in the agri-food system. Um, and here we can break it down into different commodities to see which ones are generating value addition on the farm and off the farm, and then which ones have stronger linkages to each other. That last point about measuring linkages is actually something that we do a lot of. And I said I wasn't going to talk about models, but I'm going to end as is true to form by talking about modeling. And, and at IFBRI, we have a model which we call RIAPA, the Rural Investment and Policy Analysis Model. And, and these models are based on the same database that our Ag GDP Plus estimates are coming from. It's why PIM has been, and USAID and the Gates Foundation have been investing in our data development because it is particularly useful for, for the models we use to advise on say national ag investment plans and so on. Now we often use RIAPA to simulate growth in different value chains, right? To say, what if we could get a certain value chain to grow faster, right? What would it mean for poverty reduction, for ag GDP plus, for ag employment plus, and for diets and, and women's inclusion and so on. And so here on the right-hand side, you see just an example. I purposefully cut it off because it's not the focus for us today, but you can see some example of our analysis for say Nigeria, where we can see how each of these individual value chains, which we are sort of, which are part of ag GDP, part of the broader economy, if we can stimulate growth in these different value chains, we get different levels of effectiveness in terms of driving poverty reduction, creating additional ag GDP plus, additional employment in the broader agri-food system and so on. And what you can see then is that we can use these metrics that we've just discussed to compare how different value chains for investment may, um, may be more or less effective in driving these different changes that we think are associated with inclusive agricultural transformation.
We can take, instead of a value chain lens, we can look at specific policies like research, extension, irrigation, roads, education. And instead of looking at, at how effective different value chains are, we can look at how effective those different investment options are. But all of these, to come back to the point of this session, all of these are measuring and comparing the effectiveness of these different interventions, value chains and policies and investments around how, how well they drive growth, not just on agri in agriculture, but in the broader agri-food system. And so having these metrics, Ag GDP Plus and Ag Employment Plus, allows us to put numbers on the table and to make comparisons and to measure trade-offs. And so let me end by saying that I know that there is no single data source or any metric that is going to perfectly capture all of the aspects of agricultural transformation and all aspects of the agri-food system. But I've given you a taste of these two measures that we've generated and I can categorically say with absolute honesty that I think Ag GDP Plus and Ag Employment Plus are much better indicators of agricultural transformation than just agricultural GDP or agricultural employment on their own now. Right. And I think you've seen some of this cross-country evidence that supports that, that suggests the kind of dynamics we would like to see in a successful, successfully transforming country. A lot of those dynamics are happening beyond the farm. There are clear strengths and, and clear uses for these two different indicators that, that I've just walked through. Right? Clearly, GDP and employment, the big advantage is people understand what they mean. Right? And they're, they're familiar to policymakers. Policymakers know that employment is a major of development objective. Um, and and they, they are regularly using these indicators to make decisions. And so that's one of the big advantages that these are familiar. The limitations of these indicators are also known. Right? We know that some things are included in GDP and other things aren't. And we know that employment, there's secondary and people have third jobs. and and we know that time allocations are variable across these different activities. And so by only looking at primary employment, as most official employment statistics do, um, we know that, that it has limitations and we can work around those. As I mentioned, these two indicators are entirely driven by data and international statistical conventions or systems, not by my personal assumptions. Right? Uh, our definition is clear and then we apply it. So there is no model that is sitting there creating some black box between us and, and what the numbers are telling us. That said, we can easily get these indicators and these databases into our agri-food system tools and models like RIAPA um, or any other models that others use. So where are we taking this now? Um, we, have a, we have an approach and we're developing a, a, a country food system diagnostic toolkit that uses this Ag GDP Plus and Ag Employment Plus to help us understand over time how is an agri-food system within a country been changing? Where are the gaps? Where is the agri-food system falling short? And how can we benchmark, now that we have this big global database, how can we see where a country is relative to its peers? And can we see whether or not it's, it's on track or falling off track relative to how other countries have been faring? And then obviously one of our big goals, and it's always a goal for PIM, is that we need to make all of our data and all of our tools publicly available so that they're useful to you and, and to others. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, James. Um, that was great. And we have um, a few questions that have come in. Um, and so we'll, we'll pose those in the next uh, 20 minutes that we have together. 
Um, there were a couple questions that came in related to what's in and what's out, I guess, of your <clears throat> of your framework. So again, you had you had mentioned, uh, you know, that you wanted to have somewhat of a conservative estimate of agriculture, and not uh, because uh, not to make all the connections. But uh, there was uh, just a follow up to your comment about input suppliers. Um, being um, included insofar as they um, address the the production side of things, um, but and the processors. But why, you know, and you mentioned briefly you didn't want it to expand this. But the, the question was why do they not also address the other four groups mentioned who also have suppliers, at least as one type of uh, of, of data point that might be uh, relevant to consider. And then another similar question came in um, on your. Uh, regarding um, what your your focus on hotels um, and 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 food services, um, the question was more generally: um, Do you capture all the food that's taken away from home, or are there other some gaps that are not covered that that might be covered in that one? Um, and then maybe just another one about what's um, um, in and out uh, was a question about. Um, uh, uh, in your presentation, you you focus on certain regions and and not had anything uh, any country specific from East Asia. So there was a question just uh, regarding uh, was that uh, you know what what do you find is there some some lessons from East Asia that you you could also share that you haven't been able to share? Well, thanks very much. These are great questions, and it's a really good place to start around this definition because the the strength of the approach lies in the transparency of this definition, and we have to be strict, right? We, we can't put everything in. Um, let me give you an example. So around the input suppliers, um, you know, uh, input suppliers, they're supplying fuel, let's say, to, to run the irrigation schemes on the farm. They're providing fuel to, to run some of the, the, the business lorries for the, the, the food processing plant. So they're clearly supplying an input directly to the farmers or the processors. And so we include the, the value of that fuel. If it is produced locally, right? If, if it is a country like Nigeria or, or an oil producing country that has its own processing, the value added from that crude oil and oil petro, petroleum processing sector, that gets included. But what about the, the notepads and the lights and, and the electricity that those input suppliers have in, in their back office and what about the value added of the electricity sector that's supplying those input suppliers um, with inputs? And you could see how very quickly we could follow this chain. There are inputs going into the input supply, and there are inputs going into the input supply to the input suppliers. We could cast the net incredibly wide. Um, the problem with that, is, as I said, is eventually you end up capturing everything. It's like a multiplier effect. You end up capturing far more um, than is actually useful or understandable um, for, for sort of making policy decisions and so on. So, so for that reason, we decided to do two things. One is we only count one degree removed. Um, in terms of the input supply chains that are coming into food and agriculture. And that's our second. We only focus on the inputs that are going into the food and agricultural components, as opposed to the inputs that are also going into the traders and the transporters. It's a decision that we've made, and it's partly reflecting where we think the data is strongest. Um, and so, um, and so it, it, is, it is somewhat arbitrary. 
um, but it is at least a definition that is consistently applied. Again, let me say that 15 years of age for defining when employment, decent employment can start, that is somewhat arbitrary in, in some ways. What? Why 15? Well, because we've got to put put a line in the sand somewhere and, and we're doing the same with Ag GDP plus. Um, but again, all of this is flexible and could be adapted if there is a particular interest in a particular country to go that one step further. Um, uh, for hotels and food services, uh, the one thing I should stress is that we very strictly adhere to official national accounts. And so if some, if an activity or an income is not being captured by the national accounts in their measure of GDP, we do not add it in. So we're only as good as the national accounts system. And we, we stick to national accounts for a very good reason, and that is that you know, there is a measure of GDP, and it's a very important policy um, uh, data point for, for making decisions. And so if we start to deviate from official statistics on these core fundamental um, uh, statistics, then very quickly we lose our traction with, uh, with, uh, with, with policymakers, because this really is a country's own reflection of its own economy. And so we need to be very careful if we're going to sort of step beyond those bounds and start saying, no, this is what your country looks like. Um, so to come back to food services, we're capturing street food, we're capturing the informal sector, um, but only insofar as the national accountants do. And, and I'm willing to, happy to talk about what they manage to, to capture and what, and what they don't. Um, but from an, an official position, from this system of national accounts that governs what these, net, what these statisticians do, in principle, all of the activities, formal and informal in the food services are being captured. And then finally on East Asia, I had to pick eight countries. I didn't want to spread us too thinly, so I just picked those eight. Um, but yes, we have, as you saw, uh, near complete coverage. We have complete, near complete coverage of um, of East Asia and the Pacific. And so, um, yeah, happy to share those those more detailed results uh, for those countries with you and and all the other countries too. Great, thank you. Thanks very much. I think there's a couple more questions about the data, so let me pose those. By the way, I should have acknowledged that those questions that I posed already came from Martin Van Ginkle and Claire Orbell and Simon Maxwell, and I, I might get to some others of theirs as well as others. So one question um, that came in from uh, Gear McCassie uh, from Micarta was about this measurement error post, uh, subject because he, not, he notes that measurement error could be um, systematic in, in the sense that it's higher for least developing countries compared to better off countries. So, um, so he's, he's asking how, given the importance of agriculture and those in the poorer countries, how reliable are the results? So that's one question. Um, another question that's come in from Chris Barrett was, was specifically about the employment data. So can you say more about the ILO data and the undercounting likely if it only classifies people based on primary jobs, given that multiple jobs are especially commonplace in low and middle income countries, and perhaps especially in the sectors like food service or processing. And then maybe one last more general question is, is really related, I guess, to the informal sector and the possible undercounting of the informal sector in some of the uh, uh, some of your measurements uh, that you have. Okay, these are these are great great questions. Absolutely on the measurement error. Um, I you know for a start, I think as uh, I, 
at the risk of making myself sound very exciting, I was once involved in the rebasing exercise of, of Tanzania's national accounts, and, and it was a long and laborious process, but I was working with uh, one of the royal ex-royal statisticians from the UK, and, and you know, we were trying to find what the right numbers should be to, to sort of estimate Tanzania's new GDP numbers, and I asked him, you know, seems awfully uncertain like there's a lot of decisions that we're making that seem slightly ad hoc um are we really the experts you know what is that margin of error um around uh, around gdp uh, around gdp growth and and he very quickly said look he thinks the margin of error for tanzania is probably plus minus one to two percentage points on the growth rate each year right which is huge um for a country that's growing at maybe five percent or six percent so I said, well, that sounds terrible. And he said, um, well, actually, you know, in the UK, they reckon their margin of error is around about half a percentage point. And they have a team of over 100 national accountants estimating GDP every year. Tanzania has a team of maybe five. So, um, so the fact that there is a margin of error, even in the UK, even with all those resources and data sources at, at their disposal, um, suggests that yes, margin measurement error is a huge issue. And, and actually the statistician I was working with in Tanzania said, he, he laughs at how quickly economists take GDP numbers as given and then measure noise around the mean when in actual fact each observation has incredibly high measurement error itself. Um, so yes, I, I think it's higher in low-income countries than it is in developed countries, but I think it's present everywhere. Um, on the employment numbers, I completely agree. Um, we know only focusing on primary sector employment is very unsatisfying, particularly since in that that framework of transformation, we know that you know often it's it's taking one step off the farm, one foot off the farm, not both. And so farmers are diversifying at the margin the activities that they engage in by taking on second or third jobs um, over the course of the year or at any given point in time. So, so yes, we are definitely, um, in that sense, undercounting that the, the importance of the second job. There's also another story that I would, I would, which has always been a bit of a shock to me, which was um, in 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 Ethiopia when they took on the new. Um, ILO rules around employment, which said that you needed to be, well, in Ethiopia, let's say, they, they changed the rules that said, actually, instead of having to work, I can't remember exactly what it was, 10 hours a week, you now only had to work um, two hours a week in order to, to, to be considered employed. And suddenly we saw a huge number uh, increase in employment in elementary occupations. And when we dug a little deeper, what we saw is that all of this new employment that suddenly was created, that it was apparently driving rapid structural change in the country, was actually us now capturing young girls going out and collecting firewood and water for a few hours in the week. And that suddenly they were counted as, as employed. And so I think this is where, you know, this to me points to why we need a standard definition, you know, and, and actually we had to work quite hard in Ethiopia to convince our, our colleagues in the country that, um, that this wasn't evidence of structural transformation, people moving off the farm. This is us just broadening our definition of what constitutes employed. And so I think this is why we need to have these consistent definitions, even if we feel that they are straight jacketing us, um, because it, it's in, for this kind of exercise, it's particularly important for cross-country comparisons to have a, a, a single, uniform, consistent definition um, across countries. So we do risk undercounting, absolutely, just as we do when we measure the input supplies that are coming into the agri-food system. But we would rather sort of um, exercise caution um, uh, yeah, to be consistently wrong over time, I guess, is really what I'm saying. Anyway, but thanks. It's a good question, and it's one which has given us headaches.
I think uh, good. That's good. there was another one on informality, but I think you've kind of touched on it in some of the. Unless you wanted to add anything about that, but I, you may have covered uh, it. The only thing I would say is that there is a common misconception amongst many people that national accounts do not capture the informal sector, and this is completely untrue. Um, you know, one of the biggest sectors in most of it, most low-income countries is agriculture, and most of it is subsistence. And, you know, growing food for your own consumption. Uh, strictly speaking, national accounts should treat that as as you know, you working within your own household and therefore not generating GDP. But actually national accountants go to great lengths to put a value on home production and consumption of agriculture um, and also a value on the collecting of wood uh, for fires, uh, firewood and, and water. Actually a lot of the forestry and, and water sectors are from home, uh, from informal sort of home production. Um, so yeah. Good, great. Uh, two, there's two, two questions that, uh, uh, are linked a little bit in terms of uh, understanding transformation of food systems. So one question that came from Charlotte Hebebrand from IFPRI, she said, what about contributions to Ag GDP Plus and Ag Employment Plus derived from the imports of inputs and agri-food products? Could these two, could these be two indicators to consider for measuring food system transformation? And then just a related question, um, you presented data, uh, cross-sectional data comparing countries at a, a certain uh, period of time, but can you go back in time in uh, a number of countries to, recal to calculate these same statistics so that we can look at transformation of these different components of, of GD GDP plus over time in the countries? Yeah, that, that, those are great questions. So on the first one about imports as, as, as an indicator of transformation, um, if the inputs are coming in from a country, let's think fertilizer. If the fertilizer is all input, imported, as it is in many places in Africa, the fertilizer is being imported, say, into Malawi and is being used to, to make maize farming more productive. What we're going to see is the result of that fertilizer coming into the country, making maize farming more productive and then not uh, generating positive spillovers into the maize milling sector and other all the way down to the consumer. What we won't see is um, any value added um, in the country from the production of that fertilizer because all the value added, all the GDP, all the incomes from producing that fertilizer are actually being generated and being earned by workers outside of the country. So, so absolutely, there, there, there is a supply of inputs that allow um, the sectors that are within the country to, to expand and generate jobs and, and incomes, GDP. Um, but we're not going to get any GDP. We're not going to count any of the GDP that comes from the production of, that, um, of the fertilizer in the country. Otherwise, we'd run the risk of double counting when we compare countries, and we'd also deviate from sort of what is GDP. Uh, um, it's a measure of, na of gross domestic um, production, or and employment is obviously happening in the country. So, um, the uh, uh, but there are more or less sophisticated ways to deal with that, and I would say I don't think we're using the most sophisticated, partly because of the data constraints that we have. Um, the data sources out there that do track the flow of imports very specifically into the country tend to be a little less precise in in um, in developing countries, and so the data sets you draw on tend to be sort of reanalysis, think more modelled than than than, than statistics. Uh, than, than statistics. On that second question about time series, absolutely. So it's true, in order to get these 98 countries, we, you know, our starting point was to compile a big database of all these different national data sources. Um, uh, 
But for some countries, we have gone back over time. In Nigeria, for example, for the new jobs strategy, we did one of these countries, country diagnostics that went back to 2009 and looked at what was driving growth over the last 10 years and what's been happening inside the agri-food system versus the rest of the economy. So we can do time series. I would say, actually, you know, the work that we're doing with USAID is very much about that. The idea is that you know, Ag GDP Plus and Ag Employment Plus are high-level outcome indicators of the global food security strategy. And so we are tracking those carefully over time as part of a, an M&E system, um, supplying uh, pieces of um, you know, data points or, or tracking indicators into that, into that system. So, and, yeah. Um, so yeah, over time is, is very interesting. The one issue we have is if we want to look at very long periods of time, because just as we said, there are different data quality across countries, low income versus high income, even within low income countries where they've made tremendous strides over the last decade or more to improve data systems. If we want to do a long time series, we're going to end up drawing from the good data that's been produced recently and the not so good data from two or three decades ago. Um, and, and I'm afraid to say some of that data from two or three years, decades ago uh, might be unusable for the kind of precision type analysis that we want to do here. Great. Thanks, James. But uh, since we're running out of time, there's a, there's still a few questions I want to get to, so I'm going to lump together a couple of apples versus oranges, I think. But one that just came in as a as it was related to some previous questions we asked about what the what you can and can't do um, or potentially could do. So um, the question is: Do you know if existing national accounts capture data on the bioeconomy? And can the work on ag GDP and its REAPA model provide insights? Grant granularity to policy in this area for agri-food systems. So um, they, uh, he goes on, this is Sebastian Clerc Renault. Since there are broader efforts to move the measure of GDP towards inclusion of value or damage to the environment, um, this is of importance. And so to what extent might you be able to extend, extend this to reflect changes into the, uh, um, to the environmental assets? Um, of economies, so that's uh, that's another kind of topical one. And then there there was a, there were a number of questions as you might expect around well, when is the data coming out? What are the other future plans for this? So I, I guess the so one is uh, is there an estimate uh, estimate timeline for when the data will be available? Um, uh, and then there was some questions about. Uh, you know, f uh, future uses of the data. What What are your plans? And you had mentioned that you're going. You You've been working with some countries, but now that we have the UN Food Security uh, Food System Summit, excuse me, uh, uh, coming up this year, are there some plans for um, injecting it into that as well? So let me stop there and over to you. I'm guessing that last question was from you, Frank. As our that overlord. was from Simon. That was actually <laughs> okay. that was from Simon Maxwell. <laughs> well, let, let me come back to that at the very end. But um, on on the environment side, you know, this is where I think some of the most interesting work can be done, um, and we've, we're starting. So um, I've spoken a lot about the national accounts, the system of national accounts. Well. This is all run by the UN Statistical Department, standardizing the way information is collected, compiled, and and presented. Um, the uh, in addition to just the standard national accounts, the GDP numbers that we see, they also have environmental accounts, these satellite accounts, and they're they're not optional, but very few countries have quite fully implemented them. Um, but there are a few countries that have. So Uganda, for example, has just published a full set of of water accounts for for the for their economy. 
Um, and, and so, you know, we're working now to embed that together with the, the national accounts. We've done this in a couple of countries. And, and in a way, we use it loosely and somewhat jokingly, but we're estimating what is essentially ag water plus, how much water is being consumed in the production of food, not just on the farm, but in the broader agri-food system. Um, likewise, you know, it's, it's actually one of the earliest uses of these kinds of modeling for, uh, data frameworks is to measure the greenhouse gas emissions that are sort of embodied in different products, uh, not just where the actual emissions take place, but you know, inside the plastic buckets and, and other things that we consume, how much carbon and carbon emissions are in there. Um, in a way, you know, this is something else we're working on. C can we capture the, the carbon emissions, the greenhouse gases that are embodied in agri-food systems? Think of it as, as ag emissions plus, if you will. We haven't quite gone that far, but that's really where we're heading. Um, and so, yes, we, we really are this year embracing a head-on the need to, to generate agri-food system environmental outcome indicators so, so that we can uh, sort of think of that alongside poverty, employment, and diets, and so on, as one of these factors for influencing decisions. So then where is the data coming from? So firstly, I should say that all the, all the raw data is generally available on the IFPRI website, although we, we produce quite large volumes, and so we're a little bit behind. If there's any particular country that you see on, that, uh, on, that, on the slide deck that you would like to have the country's data for, please let me know if, if and all of it. Um, and then these outcome indicators, these Ag GDP Plus, Ag Employment Plus, um, we need to get these out, I completely agree, in, in some sort of format that, you know, some kind of online portal and so on. Um, we've we've been discussing some options, um, but we need to move forward on that. So, um, but if you do want these country estimates, uh, feel free to send an email to me. My, my email address was on the front page of this uh, slide deck, which will be shared with you. And then for the Food Systems Summit, it's an excellent idea. Uh, maybe we start with, with I, I don't know how to make make a dent in the noise of what is happening around this summit, um, but maybe a well-timed and positioned blog with lots of retweets might might get through the through, get through the thicket. But happy to try, and and I think we should because I think we've got something to contribute. Thanks very much. Great, thank you very much, James. And uh, we've we've come to the end of our time, so I'll try to I'll wrap up here. I think we got to most of the questions too, so that was very good. Um, but J James, one thing I didn't mention in the in the questions was there was a lot of quite a, a number of accolades for your presentation as well. They thought it was very insightful and uh, and uh, and authoritative and. Uh, well done. So congratulations to you, and I would concur with that. No, I think this was, and I think as it was recognized in some of the statements, was is, this is a very important uh, um, breakthrough. I think because uh, you know we've been all trying to reorient ourselves, especially in the CGI, or away from just agriculture too, the, looking at the whole food system. But until you can really kind of grasp it with metrics, as you've as you've indicated, it, it it's it's it may, it's a difficult thing to to formulate discussions around until we can do that. And so I think this is very powerful. And I think that's what's also recognized in many of the, the comments that came in. So uh, congratulations to you for that. Uh, we look forward to the application of this. We look forward to the you know the influence possibly wide influence, uh, um, you know, even as how, how do we do research and, and reconfigure ourselves. Uh, this also came in from Simon Maxwell about, well, if this is really the, the case, then, uh, you know, should the CG be doing more research on, on some of these other areas that you've highlighted as being important to the food system? So, yeah, I think this could this could have uh, very broad implications. And so I look forward to uh, future um, um, developments and, and dissemination activities from you. And uh, with that, I will 
bring this to a close. And just to remind you that uh, the, this this webinar will be posted on the PIM website shortly if you want to, to revisit it. And do feel free to contact James uh, for any of your data requests or, 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 or concerns. So thank you very much, everyone. Have a good day. Thanks, everyone.